Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. Um, I have a special announcement to make. Actually, two, but one's really quick. I found out that today is the 51st anniversary of Nelson and Melva Sanguinetti. Where are you? Okay. Right over here. There they are. Okay. Uh, congratulations to both of you. 51 years. That's an achievement. Um, last Tuesday night, we had a fireside chat with uh, myself and our children's uh, pastor, pastor to families, Tammy, and uh, this is an opportunity for you to learn more about our plans for the future, what we're excited about uh, at First Church of the Nazarene, and how you can uh, participate in that. Guess what we're doing this Tuesday? Trent, our lead associate, and Stephen Esterbrooks, who's our youth director, are going to be featured this Tuesday night. It's on Zoom, 7 to 8 p.m. on Zoom this Tuesday night. Uh, please join us. Come with questions and thoughts that you've got, but they're just going to share their vision for the future this Tuesday night, so please don't miss that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this uh, series on the Gospel of Mark, and as we round out this uh, section of the Gospel of Mark before Advent, Lord, I pray today uh, that you would help me uh, to just bring this together. Uh, Lord, this uh, story is such an adventure of grace, um, of revealing to us your plan for this world and for eternity. Uh, give us hearts, Lord, to receive and minds to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so much of life is about managing expectations. I think we, we know that. And I don't know if this has uh, ever happened to you, but there's times, you know, when I'm going out to eat and I'm expecting something to be served, you know, because the picture on the menu looks like one thing and then what they actually put in front of you is another. Kind of like this. Ever had that happen? Anybody here? Okay. A little bit disappointing. Or, you know, you get one of those really uh, beautiful snowy days, you know, when it's just right around the freezing point and the snow's kind of sticky and you want to go out and do one of these. But it ends up kind of looking like the one on the right. And so sometimes reality meets expectations. And it can be a little bit disappointing. So in Jesus' day, the Jewish people, um, had, they, they had been waiting hundreds of years for their Messiah, for their coming king, who they believed would restore David's throne and establish God's kingdom on earth. And expectations were high as they were waiting for their Messiah. And a lot of them had some pretty firm ideas about what the Messiah would be like, that he would be a mighty warrior a conqueror, a victorious king, a ruler of nations. But Jesus came, and he was none of those things, at least not on the surface. To many and most people, Jesus was not what they were expecting. So those who should have recognized him, the Jewish leaders, were slow to recognize him. And many rejected him. And that's what we find in the Gospel of Mark. Here Jesus was, the Messiah. He was among them. He's performing miracles. He's healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind and so on. But they didn't understand. And therein is a, is a cautionary tale for you and for me. We might think in this 21st century that we're somehow different but we're really not that much different. And so there's times when I find for me, sometimes I don't know what's 
right in front of me, um, kind of like this, you know, where are my glasses? And uh, this happens to me all the time, okay? Where did I leave my glasses? How many of you have reading glasses today? A lot of you have reading glasses. And I've had this happen just the way I am right now. And I'll say to my wife, Colleen, I said, oh, I got to read something and, and I can't find my reading glasses. Where are they? And she'll say, they're hanging on your shirt. Or sometimes they're on top of my head. And that happens in life because things often are not where we think they should be. And in the same way, sometimes there is a truth that is right in front of us, but we don't perceive it. We're so fixated on our worldview, on the way that we perceive reality, that somehow when God wants to break in on us and give us a different perspective, it's hard for us to see it. And that's what we see happening in the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's kind of like one of these, anybody here know what a stereo, uh, an auto stereogram is? It's one of these images here, and I, this is going to really mess with you. I think it's going to come up on the screen. Okay, maybe it's not. But an autostereogram is one of those images where you look at it, and all you see is a bunch of dots and lines and that, but if you just really peer into it and look deeply, you'll see another image come through that's buried deep inside of that two-dimensional image. And life is like that. Sometimes we see things on the surface, but we don't see the deeper meaning that is buried within it and that God wants to reveal to us. And it was kind of uh, interesting. I find for myself, uh, I'm very goal-oriented. I'm really goal-oriented. And I have certain points of view that are very, very strong. I have doctrines that I believe. Um, and when I get plans... I get pretty set on those plans. Well, you know what's interesting? The whole world had plans in January and February of 2020. I was registered for some conferences and seminars and so on. All were canceled. Because in the midst of our plans, sometimes God has a different plan. And I do believe that he used the pandemic, to reorient his church, his people, to show us that he's about doing something that perhaps we need to start paying attention to. So in the Gospel of Mark, we see people, including uh, religious people, who naively thought, you know, that, that life is kind of business as usual, but in the midst of all that, God appears in the person of Jesus Christ and he quietly begins carrying out his plan. But hardly anybody noticed at the beginning. Hardly anybody noticed. And when they did begin to take notice, many resisted him. It's kind of interesting. The Jewish scholars studied the scriptures, which was the Old Testament. And they would study the prophecies about the Messiah, their coming king and what he would be like but they didn't understand. So when he came, they rejected him. So how about you and me today? How are we any different than them? Because in our day, so they were waiting for the advent of their coming king, their Messiah, his first coming. They thought he was going to come and establish God's kingdom on earth, 
overthrow the mighty Roman Empire? Well, today we're waiting for his second advent, his second coming, for the return of Jesus. And you know what? Today there are Bible scholars, there are pastors, and some of you here today that we study these things. People are looking at prophecy in the book of Revelation, and we think we've nailed it. But have we? Just like them, it's easy for us to get so locked into one particular point of view that we might miss out on what God is really up to in our world. And I hate to see that happen. So we're going to continue our exploration of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to round this out before Advent, and then we're going to begin again in January in the next segment of this series of messages. But what we see in the Gospel of Mark, and this is beginning at verse 24, and not all these uh, verses are going to come up on the screen. Some of them will. But we see that Jesus, in verse 24, he moves uh, away from Galilee, and he moves into Gentile territory. And uh, so he's moving north, and it tells us that he, he, he wants to just kind of get away from the crowds a little bit. He wants a little bit of alone time. But it tells us that he goes into this home, and a Syrophoenician woman, who is a Gentile, and she's a woman, finds him. And her daughter is not well. And he wants, she wants Jesus to deliver her daughter to make her whole. And there's an interesting conversation that takes place, but at the end of the day, Jesus listens to her request, and her daughter is delivered from a demon. And that was in Gentile territory. And then in the next passage, beginning at verse 31, it tells us that, that there was a man who was deaf, and he was mute, or at least he couldn't speak really well, and he comes to Jesus and he wants to be made well. He wants to be made whole. And it tells us that Jesus looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, he said, Ephatha, which means in Aramaic, be opened. And this is what it says in verse 35. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak freely. My prayer is that our ears would be opened and our tongues would be loosened and we would speak plainly about Jesus. That's kind of a metaphor for what's going on in this passage. And it tells us in Mark 7, 37, this is what it says. After Jesus heals this man, it says that all the people were amazed. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. People were amazed. But they didn't quite understand what was going on. Well, then we get to the next story, which is in Mark chapter 8. And this is the feeding of the 4,000. Now, you might be a little bit confused. If you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, and you get to chapter 8 the feeding of the 4,000, and you're going, didn't I just read this? Because just a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus feeds 5,000. You know, uh, loaves and fish. And now here, here you are again, and you're going, well, did Mark make a mistake? Did he repeat? Did he forget to do some edits in his writing? You know, uh, No. 
It actually, if you read it, it was on purpose. This was a second miracle. This was a feeding, not of 5,000, but of 4,000. And all the people were there. It's getting late, and there's a long distance. And the disciples are like, Jesus, you know, we, how are we going to feed these people? And Jesus says, you're going to feed them. And again, Jesus does a miracle of multiplying the loaves and the fish. He does it again. And there's a bit of a subliminal message here. All they have is a few loaves and some fish. And there's 4,000 people. And they're a long way from a restaurant or from home. Didn't have restaurants, I don't think. Okay. What does Jesus do? They're thinking scarcity. He's thinking abundance. When Jesus is present, there's always enough to go around. There's a lesson here for us. There was enough to go around, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, for all people. There's room at his table for everybody who will come to him in faith. And I love what British theologian N.T. Wright says, and I'll just read this quote. He said, of course, our resources will seem totally inadequate. Now, I want you to think of yourself right now. Ever felt inadequate? He said, that is Jesus' problem if you feel inadequate, not ours. And these stories indicate that he will cope with it. Our task is not to bemoan how few loaves and fishes we have for the crowd, but just to offer the little that we have to Jesus and be ready to distribute them. Would you take the little that you have and just offer it to Jesus and say, Lord, it's not much, but what I have is yours. And there's kind of another subliminal message in there, and that is when Jesus wants to do something, he always invites his followers to join him and to help him in doing that. So I'm going to ask you to think about something. When is the last time that you trusted God to use you in a way that exceeds your limitations and your weaknesses? How many people in the Bible, like Moses, Lord, I'm not enough. I can't speak. How about Gideon when God reduces his army from 30,000 to 300? Gideon didn't feel like he was enough. But isn't that the point? When is the last time that you and I have trusted him to do something that exceeds our limitations and our weaknesses? Are you willing to do that today? Am I? Well, then Jesus moves on in chapter 8. And and this is an interesting passage. It tells us that the Pharisees and and some of the uh, followers of King Herod um, begin to test Jesus. They kind of interrogate him. And this is what it says in verse 11. The Pharisees came and they began to question him, to test him. And they asked him, show us a sign from heaven. Prove yourself to us. And he sighs deeply, you know, like one of those exasperated, like... You know, like, 
Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And then he leaves and he goes back into the boat and he crosses to the other side. And then, in verse 14, says the disciples, as they're going in the boat to the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. Now, this is a very weird passage, so don't worry about it. But there's this really strange conversation that takes place. Because they had seen the him multiply the loaves and the fish. And they're in the boat. They got one loaf of bread. And Jesus warns them. He says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they started talking about what he meant. And they said in verse 16, is it because we have no bread? What, what does Jesus mean about the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees? What's he talking about? Well, Jesus was using the idea of leaven as a metaphor the idea is that yeast or leaven works its way through the dough. It has this influence. And he's saying, watch out for the influence of the Pharisees and of Herod. Be careful to not be influenced by their false notions of the kingdom of God. So you see, between Jesus and everybody else, including his disciples, there were two different visions of the kingdom, at least two. The disciples had the wrong idea about how his kingdom would come and what kind of a king he would be. They failed to understand his disciples, including Peter, failed to understand his true mission. That his kingdom would not be brought by force or violence or political maneuvering. Do you think we need to learn that lesson today? His kingdom, he said, is not of this world. And it's an eternal kingdom. And his kingdom would have room for everyone who would come to him in faith. None of those social distinctions that we so often make. So the vision of the Pharisees and, the, and Herod, you know, it, for many of them, it tended to be self-serving and a little bit of an exclusive club. So Jesus challenges them not to exploit him to try to achieve their own ends. Do we ex try to exploit Jesus to achieve our own agenda? I think sometimes we do. And so Jesus warns his disciples, and he warns us too. He said that we must guard ourselves against the leaven of the Pharisees unless we fall or else we'll fall into the same trap as them. And look at verses 17 to 21. So Jesus says he was aware of their discussion, their confusion about the bread and, and, and the loaves and the fish. And he says, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not see? Do you not understand? Now this is his disciples. He said, are your hearts hardened? This is his disciples. Do you have eyes but fail to see? Ears but fail to hear. Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they said. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets pieces did you pick up? And they said seven. And then he says this. It, it's interesting. He said, do you still not understand? 
What's he talking about? Well, then the story just keeps moving forward. And Mark has arranged this in a particular way to make a point to us. In verse 22, it says they came to Bethsaida. And it's some people, it says, brought a blind man now. Not a deaf and mute person, but a blind man. And begged Jesus to touch him. It says he took the blind man by the hand and he leads him outside the village. Because Jesus wasn't about making a scene. This was not about a performance. When he had spit on the man's eyes, that was kind of a Gentile thing to do. And he put his hands on him. Jesus asked, do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see people. But they look like trees walking around. You all look like tree stumps sitting there right now. Actually, no, I can't see. I do have 20-20 now. Um, but this story about the blind man is, 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 is really, it's a metaphor that speaks to our spiritual blindness. And I think that Mark, is, who wrote this gospel, was trying to make a point. The blind man, after Jesus' first touch, saw people walking around like trees. He didn't see distinctly. He didn't see clearly. But the crowds and the disciples only saw in a fuzzy way as well. They didn't understand that Jesus was more than a prophet. They thought, he's one of the prophets. He's, he's John the Baptist, back from the dead, or, you know, whatever. And here's something that Scripture makes so abundantly clear to us, especially in the New Testament. And this is found from the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. It says, we, in this age, in this world, without the aid of the Holy Spirit, we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. That's what we see. We don't see things fully. Our understanding is limited. We see only in part. What we see often are bits and pieces. Have you ever read the Bible and you get one story here, and you get a teaching here, and another story here, and a parable here, and a proverb here, and you're kind of like, how does this all connect together? Ever wonder how it all connects together? Well, it does all connect together. There's a crimson thread that ties it all together. But often we don't see it. And many of these things have to be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. We have difficulty seeing the whole picture until it's revealed to us. And so even Jesus' disciples were slow to understand. There was more going on when he was among them than meets the eye. Much more going on. And there still is today. I believe that. And so the disciples had knowledge. They had facts. They had details. They could see in part, but they lacked deep spiritual insight. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. We're looking at the trees. We don't see the forest. I love this image here. <laughs> that's great. Isn't that clever? <laughs> but that's often how life is. So these stories of Jesus where he's going about healing and he's doing miracles and he's multiplying the loaves and the fish, making the blind to see and the deaf to hear, 
they were all signposts that pointed to who he was. Here's what happened. As Jesus did these works of power, and as he taught with authority, not like anybody else, divine authority, people would ask, who is this man? Who, who does things like this? Who speaks like this? They were curious about him, but they didn't understand. They couldn't see. But that was about to change. It tells us in Mark 8, 25, when Jesus healed that, that blind man, it says that he put his hands on the man's eyes, his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. That's what he wants to do for you and for me, that we would see clearly. So then we move into the last section of Mark chapter 8. And I'm just going to wrap this up fairly quickly. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, knows that everything is at a tipping point. They don't understand. They don't get it. And so they're leaving this area of Galilee and they're moving their way up towards the coast to Caesarea Philippi. And there, there is a temple that is dedicated to the Roman emperor, Caesar. Jesus knows that temple is there. And it tells us in verse 27 that Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he says, hey guys, so who are people saying that I am? Now he's getting to the point. Because everything he did was pointing towards his identity. And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. And another disciple pipes up and says, well, others say that you're Elijah back from the dead. And others say that you're just one of the prophets. But Peter says, but Jesus asked them, he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And you know what? At the end of the day, there's lots of theories about Jesus in the world. Who do you say he is? Really, I'm asking you that. Who do you say? Who do I say he is? Peter answers, you are the Messiah. For the first time, Peter understands who Jesus is. He really does get it now. He's connected the dots. Now he sees and he understands what the miracles were about. These are telling us who you are. They all are signposts that point to you, Lord. And this is what we call an epiphany. Everybody say epiphany. I love that word. So an epiphany, if you look it up in the dictionary, an epiphany is a moment. That's it right there. It's kind of like when things just were not clear to you. Maybe it's like a math, a math problem or something you're trying to solve, and then it, it comes to you, and you go, oh, yes. That's an epiphany. It's a moment of sudden revelation. It's a flash of insight, a poignant, sudden, profound understanding of something that eluded you before. The Jewish people were not looking for a divine redeemer who would take us to heaven one day. That wasn't what they were looking for. 
What they were looking for, what the disciples were looking for, was a king like David, who would restore David's kingdom, a kingdom of peace, righteousness, justice, joy. When Peter said, you are the Messiah, he knew that Jesus was their king, the final heir to the throne of David, the one to whom everybody else, Caesar, Herod, Antipas, and all the others were just shabby imposters, and they would all bow down before him, every other king, every ruler. Peter has this moment of clarity because it was given to him by the Father in heaven. So even Jesus' disciples were slow to understand. So guess what? Doesn't that give you a little bit of hope to know that he chose them and they were slow to understand? It gives me hope. So Jesus moves into this final section of chapter 8 in verses 31 to 33. And he starts saying things like, referring to himself as the Son of Man. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed by the chief priests and the elders. And he's going to die on a cross and then rise again. And they didn't understand this because that did not fit their picture of what the Messiah would come to do. But Jesus is giving their limited view a radical facelift. And he begins to teach them that this must happen. He's not just a martyr. This isn't a mistake. He's saying this is the way it was meant to be. I, your Messiah, your King, will be betrayed, I will be crucified, and I will rise again. It must be this way. But Peter, his chief apostle, what does he do? Now, do you remember he just had the flash of insight? You are the king. You're the Messiah. But he still doesn't get it. Because he takes Jesus aside. And he says, Jesus, no. <laughs> You've got it all wrong. This isn't going to happen. We're going to protect you. You... You're a king. You've got to fight back. But Jesus rebukes Peter, and he says something shocking. He says, get behind me, Satan. Satan means adversary. He says, Peter, right now, you're an adversary to me when you talk that way. Don't say that. And then Jesus talks about the way of the cross. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, he, she, must take up his cross Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Will you take up your cross today? Seriously. There's a lot of ways we take up the cross. What does self-denial mean for us? Not self-denial for its own sake, but for the sake of Christ and for the gospel. There are Christians all over this world, in places like Iran, who are carrying a cross, and they're making great sacrifices for their Messiah, for their King. That's why I wanted Stephen Esther Brooks to read that passage on 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and chapter 2, where it says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us it's the power of God. This message of him going to the cross is the power of God. That's what our King came to do. But in Jesus' day, people didn't understand it was hidden from them. 
until the Father would reveal it through the Spirit. So do we understand what God is up to in this church? Are we willing to pray and search the Word of God to say, God, show us what you're doing in our midst? What do you want to do, Lord, in our Jerusalem, this city of Calgary? Lord, what do you want to do in this world? Lord, how do you want to use me? Take the little that I have and multiply it. Are we willing to do that? Because you're here not just to go to church. You are the church. You're on mission. God, you don't have to be much. Because he's much. When you don't feel like you're enough, his power is made perfect in your weakness, in your limitations. So boast about those and say, God's going to do an amazing thing through little old me. That's what this was about. Do we understand that when Jesus did these things, they all pointed to who he was and to the true nature of his kingdom? Where is his kingdom? Okay. And then we're going to pray. Where is his kingdom right now? Don't answer out loud. Where is his kingdom? It's here. Now. It is among you. And it is in here. Because a king rules. And when a king rules, he rules over his people. Are you one of his people? Is he Lord? Does he rule over your heart? Is everything subject to him in your life? Are you willing to set aside your preconceived ideas and your worldview and say, Lord, teach me. Show me if I'm missing something here. Help me to see not just the parts, but the whole. So, Father, I just want to pray today as our worship team comes to sing one final song of worship. I want to pray, Father, that you would open our eyes because we know, Lord, we cannot see these things. We cannot understand these things on our own. They have to be revealed. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show us who is Jesus. Help us to know with clarity, as Peter did, that he is the Messiah, he's our coming king, and that he wants to rule in our hearts. I'll ask you a question as we're bowed in prayer. Who is Jesus to you? Can you truthfully, right now as you sit here, say, he is my king? Do you know him that way? And if not, would you say, Lord, I bow before you, and I proclaim you as my king. And may you rule over my thoughts, my words, and my life. Do you know that there's a room at his table for everyone. And he wants to involve you in inviting others to his table. Are you willing to follow him today to the cross, whatever that might mean for you? Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for this gospel that still speaks to us today so many centuries later 
May we be submitted to your lordship, to your kingship. And may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.